0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> in verses 8 and 9. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Our subject this evening is the church in Smyrna. Well, we continue with our series in this tremendous book this evening. Last week we looked at the first address of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, the seven churches, beginning with the church at Ephesus. And uh, just to clarify, uh, these addresses to the seven churches that we are looking at at this moment, they make up the first cycle of the book of Revelation. Remember how I stated Uh, That The book of Revelation is made up of seven cycles looking at the gospel age or presenting the gospel age from seven seven different viewpoints or angles, and uh, we are looking at the first angle, the first cycle, the first uh, overview of the gospel (coughs) age. It's focusing on the church, the church on earth. How will the church be in the gospel age? And uh, well, one thing we can deduce from these uh, seven addresses is that it is clear that the church on earth will not be perfect in the gospel age. There is no perfect church. That's uh, at least one conclusion we can draw. But during the gospel age, the church will be strong in some areas and weak in other areas. That will be the nature of the church. And uh, although there is no perfect church, the Lord is writing to the churches to make them aware of their strengths and their weaknesses and to exhort them to avoid those errors and failures that may lead to a lack of blessing. And so uh, these things are written to the whole church in the gospel age. And so we, as a church, we examine ourselves. We must look at ourselves and uh, see if we are guilty of any of the errors and failures that are highlighted in this book and seek to emulate the good example. And we will see a good example uh, this evening uh, in the church in Smyrna. But also, just to recap briefly, how uh, generally the the letters have a a structure, and uh, I remind you of this just before we begin, First of all, we have the salutation or address, the Lord states, who the letter is to. Then we have Christ's self-designation, he introduces himself in a certain way. Then Christ's commendation, he commends the church. And then Christ's condemnation, rebuking the church. Then there generally follows a warning, Christ's warning to correct the error or the failing, then Christ's exhortation, and always a promise, a promise of blessing at the very end upon the correction of their ways. That's the general pattern. But uh, as I've already mentioned, the church in Smyrna is slightly different because it has no condemnation. There's no condemnation that the Lord gives to the church in Smyrna. Now, uh, that's not because it was a perfect church. Within the church at Smyrna, there would have been individuals, people, who uh, were just as guilty of errors and failures as any other church. But Christ is addressing the church as a whole, and as a whole, there is no reproof, because as we we shall see, this church is, uh, well, it's being perfected by its sufferings, by its trials, by its tribulation. This is how the church is being sanctified, and so uh, what we are seeing here is a great work of sanctification in the church. This is how the Lord deals with his people, and so uh, this is uh, one of the features of this uh, particular part of uh, chapter 2, the Lord speaking to the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, just very briefly, to give you an introduction to uh, uh, what Smyrna was. Well, it was uh, part of uh, Asia Minor, and really it was a rival to Ephesus as to what was the uh, principal city or the first city in Asia Minor. It was renowned for its centers of study, its schools of medicine and science. It had tremendous uh, public buildings gathered on the top of a hill, and uh, that particular set of buildings was very distinctive. It was known as the Crown of Smyrna. It also had uh, much entertainment and leisure, a great open-air theatre, which could hold 20,000 spectators. It was a city of commerce, just like Ephesus, and, uh, well, it was a loyal ally of the Roman Empire also. But again, in the midst of this city, this great city, There was a church, and again, like Ephesus, it is uh, believed that this church was established by the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey, so we believe somewhere between AD 53 and 56. So this was the church in Smyrna, just to give you a little background. But the Lord addresses this church personally. In verse 8, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, that's the uh, address, write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. This is the self-designation that Christ gives himself, different to the way he introduced himself to the church of Ephesus. He is speaking about the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And of course, we've already seen this in this book in chapter 1 and uh, verse 17. When I saw him, when John saw the Lord... I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore. So uh, the title, the designation is repeated here, and uh, well, it's reminding the believers in Smyrna of Christ's own victory over death. His uh, life, he lived, he died. And yet he rose again, his victory over death, the firstborn amongst the dead, from the dead. And uh, this self-designation, well, it will actually be very appropriate to the church at Smyrna, as we shall see, because, uh, well, they had to deal with uh, life and death matters. And then verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. I know thy works. Well, again, this is uh, how we opened uh, with uh, uh, the church of Ephesus. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor. And again, verse 9, I know thy works. Well, this is uh, such a comfort to know just uh, in and of itself that the Lord knows about us and observes everything that we do, all the work we do in the church, every single one of us, every sacrifice, every labor, every uh, Sunday school lesson taught, every pickup, every collection, every Lord's Day, every Friday, the Lord knows. He knows all of our works. We do not labor in vain, as the Apostle Paul says. Not laboring in vain in the sense that our works will always produce something, but we do not labor in vain because the Lord always sees us and we are laboring for him and he knows our works. But he also knows the tribulation of the church in Smyrna. I know thy works and tribulation. Well, the affliction of the church in Smyrna, they were being hard-pressed. They were being persecuted in Smyrna. And uh, this, of course, is no wonder, because uh, this is a common feature of churches, faithful churches, and Smyrna was most particularly a faithful church. Every faithful church will know tribulation, will know persecution, will know opposition and hostility. Every faithful church, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. That's uh, what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If we suffer no persecution, if the world loves everything about us and loves everything that, that we do, well, there is most likely something very wrong with the church. Because a faithful church will suffer persecution. But again, there was comfort for the believers in Smyrna. The Lord knows. He knows their works. He knows their tribulation. He knew what they were suffering. He knew what they were going through. I know thy works and tribulation. And again, that would have been a tremendous comfort to the believers, even to hear that and to know that. The Lord knows our tribulation. He sees and he cares And also, well, we read of the poverty of the church. I know thy works and tribulation, their persecution, their afflictions, and their poverty. So it appears that their persecution involved some kind of uh, material loss for the church in Smyrna. They were very poor. Well, most likely these Christians in the church at Smyrna They were among the poorest in the city anyway, to start off with. But their faith, it would appear, has led to greater poverty. Perhaps they had been forced out of their jobs because of their faith, because they were Christian. Perhaps it was impossible to find employment anywhere else because of their faith. Perhaps they were targeted. We'll read in just a few moments about the Jews, There was a great Jewish community in Smyrna because it was a city of commerce. And perhaps, well, the influence of the Jews was causing the Christians to be deprived of certain liberties, of things that they needed. They were poor. But, well, we can be sure that uh, these believers, they had counted the cost. These believers, they knew that their faith would cost them and cost them dearly, but it didn't stop them. It didn't stop them professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or following Christ. They were willingly poor. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. And uh, well, what an example that is for us. We have to ask ourselves constantly: Are we willing to forego earthly riches to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? To give up, for example, if we had to, uh, a good job with large wages for Christ? Are we willing to become poor in that sense? To, uh, uh, To give up things that others have, to never own your own home, for example, for Christ? To be poor in the sight of the world? Are we willing to do that if it was to honor him? This church was materially poor. And uh, this was commended by the Lord. This is part of Christ's commendation. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But then, of course, he adds, but thou art rich. Well, we've been thinking about this in our series uh, in Second uh, Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul describes the apostles as poor and yet making many rich. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give iv we have that message that leads people to great riches the greatest riches that they could ever know we are poor yes but uh, we lead people to spiritual wealth but uh, these believers they are spiritually rich that was the glory of the church in smyrna materially poor yet yeah, yes but they had divine resources to call upon They had prayer, they had tremendous answers to prayer, they were rich in the knowledge of the truth, they were rich in faith, rich in endurance, their witness would have been a rich witness, not a poor witness, it wasn't a poor witness that they had, it was a rich witness. I'm sure many of those around them, even perhaps their oppressors, would say to themselves, these are believers they're so poor they hardly have anything they hardly have uh, uh, two pennies as it were to add together and yet look at their joy look at their peace look at how they love one another look at how they support one another that would have been a rich witness they were in poverty yes but thou art rich look how you are affecting people around you causing them to think causing them to give honor and glory to the God whom they know. It was a witness of great, tremendous value. And uh, well, of course, through their obedience to the Lord, they were laying up treasure in heaven. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, in the Gospels, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So yes, they were poor, but they were rich. And again, these are Well, these words would have been a tremendous comfort to those who read them. And then, well, the Lord says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Well, this is uh, uh, very interesting. The blasphemy here spoken of speaks of uh, how the believers were slandered and how they were reviled and insulted. And it would appear that this uh, slander is coming from uh, the Jews of Smyrna, those who call themselves Jews, say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Well, the Jews, just like in the time of Christ, they uh, no doubt called themselves the true children of God. We are the true children of God because we are of the nation of Israel, we are Jews. We are children of Abraham. We are the real heirs of salvation. We don't need Christ. He is not the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. He is not the one who is God's anointed. These Christians are deluded. They are foolish. They are not to be listened to or esteemed. They ought to be done away with. They ought to be persecuted. They were slandered, the believers in Smyrna, by the Jews, those who claimed to be the true children of God, and yet what were they really? They were the synagogue of Satan. They were not allied to God in any sense. Satan was using them to attack the believers in Smyrna. Well, we're reminded very much of the Lord's words to the leading Jews in John chapter 8. Ye do the deeds of your father, he said to them. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Ye are of your Father the devil, and the lusts of your Father ye will do. That's what uh, Christ said of the leading Jews. Ye are of your father, the devil. And it's put here in another way. They are of the synagogue of Satan. It's essentially the same thing. Those who claimed to know God, to be heirs of salvation, they were not. They were of the synagogue of Satan. And this was very sad. But verse 10, we must move on. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now these are words of comfort, but they may appear to be unusual words of comfort. Unusual words, because what the Lord is saying is that the tribulation will actually get worse. They've already suffered much, much tribulation, much poverty, blasphemy, slander, and so on. But in verse 10, he's essentially saying, this will get worse. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And this, well, this all follows. Verses 9 and 10, it follows the pattern of persecution. Persecution builds. Fierce persecution does not happen overnight. There's always a pattern. There's always a building up. And uh, we've seen it here. The poverty, the being cast out of their jobs, the slander, and then prison will come. There is a pattern. We see it even in our day and age, in this society. Can you see the pattern of persecution? It started, well, perhaps 20, 30 years ago. Christians, being uh, increasingly mocked, the slander. Christians don't know what they're doing. On TV shows, chat shows, for example, uh, they would bring a Christian on just to laugh at him. That's how it starts, and now it's building. Now it's becoming a, a intolerance of things that Christians say, Christian teaching, some things that are in the Bible. We're so intolerant of this. There ought to be laws against this. People speaking up. How can Christians teach this and say these things in this day and age? It's building. And well, uh, well, we're already seeing people being arrested, preachers. You can't preach openly in certain places. If you say something that somebody deems to be out of turn, you'll be arrested. The persecution is building. It built here in Smyrna. It will build for us and we must be prepared for this, for this continuing persecution, the strengthening of the persecution against us. And we know that the tribulation, the persecution will be exceptionally bad before the Lord comes again. And so this is the pattern of persecution. But something we must keep in mind for our comfort, notice how the Lord puts it here. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. That ye may be tried. In other words, the Lord will allow, he will allow, permit the devil to attack and to persecute and to imprison his people. Why? Well, to try them, to try their faith, to test them, to prove them. What kind of faith do they actually have? That's why the Lord allows this, not to harm them, but to give them an opportunity to glorify God. Now, we read from Job chapter 1 earlier this evening. If you can just turn to it uh, just for a few moments, this uh, will illustrate what I'm saying, and uh, it will help us in our thinking mightily. Uh, as we consider these things and the way the Lord deals with those who are his people, the church. Job chapter 1, and we have this mysterious uh, encounter uh, between God, the Lord, and Satan. It's, uh, many of as, Many of the aspects of this account are beyond our capacity to fully understand what is going on, but the exchange is clear enough. And, uh, well, verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? But then, verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Is Job really sincere? Does he really love you? In verse 10, he continues, "Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Satan is saying, Job only loves you because you've given him good things, because you've blessed him wonderfully. You've blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. That isn't true love. That isn't true faith. Verse 11, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. I bet you, Satan is saying, that if you take away everything that he has, he won't be so faithful. He won't love you quite as much. And So verse 12, the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand so satan went forth from the presence of the lord so we see there the lord is allowing satan to come upon job to attack job as it were why because job is going to be proved as a true believer he's going to show forth that he has true faith not light faith not empty faith not faith that is only wonderful when everything is going well, but when he is tried, he has that glorious faith. And well, true faith can only really be seen when uh, we are in trials and calamities. That's when true faith can be seen It's uh, very easy saying that we have faith when everything is going well and there's prosperity in our lives and prosperity in the church. But when everything starts to go badly, then that is when our faith is shown forth. That is when our faith is made manifest. If our faith collapses when everything goes wrong, well, what type of faith do we actually have? We have to ask ourselves that. What type of faith do I actually have if it all collapses and crumbles when things go wrong? So we have here an example. The Lord allowing Satan, just as he does for the believers in the church at Smyrna, to attack, but only that he may be proved. But one last thing, just before we go back to the book of Revelation. Notice in verse 12, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, the Lord said unto Satan. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So the Lord, or let me put it this way, Satan can only do, or Satan can only attack according to the decree of God according to the restraining of the Lord. The Lord really is over Satan. And Satan cannot do any more than the Lord allows him to. Satan can attack Job and his circumstances, but at this stage he cannot put forth a hand upon him because the Lord says so, and the Lord will not allow him to do so. And that is something that we must bear in mind as we return to Revelation chapter 2, because we will see it here in verse 10. The devil has been given some freedom. He shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried to fulfill God's glorious purposes. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now that is a time that is decreed by God. That's not decreed by Satan. Satan doesn't decide how much tribulation the church will have. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now, we don't have time to go into it at great length, but the number ten, it's another one of those numbers that speaks of completeness and entirety, but there is a slight difference. Ten suggests to us that this is decreed by God, specifically decreed and set by God. So you have, for example, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments from God, set by God. Yes, they are complete, but the message is this is from God. The Ten Plagues upon Egypt, another example. They are complete in their work. They are sent from God. So Ten communicates to us that this is from God, decreed by God. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. This is my decree. It's not Satan in charge of this. Ten days ye shall have tribulation. And uh, well, what do we make of the ten days? What does that mean? Well, we we don't have to take these uh, ten days, literally. Ten days really means, uh, well, it means a definite, but also a relatively brief period of tribulation. Notice that it's 10 days. It's not 10 weeks or 10 months or even years. It's only 10 days. So when we read of tribulation and when we think of the tribulation that is to come before the Lord appears, everywhere in scripture, not just in this particular passage, we understand that it will be a relatively short time. It will be significant, but it will be a relatively short time, a time that God is over, that God has decreed. So uh, this is uh, uh, the church at Smyrna. They would have tribulation, not literally 10 days, that every single one of the members would suffer for 10 days, but it's suggesting a relatively brief period because God is merciful and kind, and he is over all things. But let me move on to the final part of this verse. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Well, faithful unto death. William Hendrickson (coughs) explains in his commentary, Be thou faithful unto death does not merely mean be loyal until you die or be a Christian until you die. But be thou faithful unto death means be faithful even though it costs your life. That's the meaning. Be faithful even though it costs your life. That's what the believers at Smyrna were prepared for. They were called to die for the faith some of them at least, to die in order to protect the gospel and to protect their witness, they were prepared for that. If that's what the Lord has called us to do, that is what they will do. And uh, they knew that was the will of the Lord. And uh, the Lord here is mentioning this to them. The Lord does not deliver them from death. He doesn't say, don't worry, none of you will die. No, his command is, be thou faithful unto death. This is what the Lord requires. And so again, we have to examine ourselves. Well, we may not be called to die for the faith. We may not be called to this uh, standard, but is our faith anywhere near this standard? It should be, at least approaching this standard, that we are prepared to give our lives for the gospel cause, if we are called of the Lord to do it. Be thou faithful unto death, and then, well, the Lord points them to the reward that they have. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Christ is very simply pointing out to the believers in Smyrna and to us that assurance Of eternal life for all those who have faith that's really what the crown means it uh, in the Greek perhaps suggests a wreath more than a crown a wreath of victory but it signifies that blessedness that victory that we have in eternity when we go to be with the Lord so we must always have that eye on eternity be thou faithful unto death why how Because you have an eternity ahead of you. You have a crown of life. There's no reason to fear death. Be thou faithful. That's your only concern in your life. Not avoiding death, but avoiding unfaithfulness. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Remember eternity ahead of you so there is no need to fear. The Apostle Paul, well, he perhaps sums it up better than anyone can, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a crown of life that will... uh, well, it cannot be compared to uh, the sufferings. The sufferings cannot be compared to the reward that we will have. And then verse 11, just to close, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, the letter is not just for those in Smyrna, but all those believers, all who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Well, the second death, we will read of the second death much later in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 when we get to it. But just very briefly, what is the second death? Well, it's very simple. The first death is that which we must all experience. The first death our mortal death, the death of our bodies. We will all die, and that is the first death. But the second death, as Herman Hoeksemer writes in his commentary, this second death is eternal death, absolute separation from the fount of all good in everlasting woe. That's a very good description of the second death. separation you know, one of the greatest definitions, I've given this many times, one of the greatest ways you can define death is that it is a separation. The first death, well, you are separated from your loved ones, from your wives, husbands, children, parents, and the separation is the great mourning, it's the great pain. That's what brings pain to death, that separation, the first death. The second death Is separation from Almighty God. Eternal separation, forsaken by God forever. The second death, only to know everlasting woe. Such a terrible prospect. The second death. Dear friends, we have to uh, consider this. Our minds over the last 18 months have been fully focused on helping people avoid the first death. We must keep people from the first death, and that's all well and good, but you know, it's the second death that we really need to be warning people about. The second death. That's far worse, eternally worse. You know, those in hell, those who will be experiencing the second death, will be wishing it only was the first death. Oh, if this was only the first death, perhaps I could have borne up with it. Perhaps I could have bared the pain, but I can't bear the pain of the second death. They'll be wishing for the first death, those who experience the second death. So we must preach the gospel. We must warn men and women about the second death. With just as much zeal, just as much energy, just as much desire as we've expended, warning them about the first death, even more so, the second death. This is what we are called to do. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ desires us to do. And well, these things are so very important. Just to close, I give you an example. Well... An example from the church of Smyrna in the year AD, 155. Bishop Polycarp, who many believe was the bishop of Smyrna, at the time he was burned at the stake. Burned at the stake. And before he was burned, he was uh, urged. The proconsul urged him to say, Caesar is Lord. If you just say, Caesar is Lord, you'll be set free. But he didn't. He refused to do that. He was faithful unto death. And furthermore, he added, just before he died, he added, Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. You see, he knew, Polycarp, surely he would have read these things. He would have known these things. He would have known, well, yes, he was about to die, but he will not be hurt by the second death. That's what he expressed to all those around him. I will die, I'll be burnt up just for a few minutes. What about you? His dying words were warning them of the second death. And that's what we must do. That's the example we must follow. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And while the church at Smyrna receives no condemnation, it receives commendation, it receives comfort, even though they will face great tribulation, but they will not be overcome at the very end. This is the church at Smyrna, a glorious church, but made perfect or being perfected by its sufferings. Well, may the Lord bless these things to us.